Worship is the only understandable, the only reasonable response to God's self-revelation. To see God in His glory and in His greatness will drive us to worship. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series titled The Heart of Worship. Throughout our study on what constitutes true biblical worship, you've learned where worship must originate and how God commands it to be done plus the importance of grasping His complete and infinite worth and glory. On today's program, Tom goes deeper into the Gospel of John, examining once again the subject of true biblical worship as it relates to seeing God for all that He is in all of His grandeur. When you do that, you will worship. Your response will be one of gratitude and awe as you consider all that he has done for you. Open your Bible right now as we join Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. This week I read a quote from one of the world's great philosophers. He wrote, Tonight I was in a meditative mood. I was absorbed in the contemplation of nature. I admired the immensity, the movements, and the harmony of those infinite globes. I admired still more the intelligence which directs these vast forces. I said to myself, one must be blind not to be dazzled by the spectacle. One must be stupid not to recognize the author of it. One must be mad not to worship him. Those words were penned by Voltaire. In spite of his own spiritual state, He was absolutely right. Worship is the only understandable, the only reasonable response to God's self-revelation. Whether that revelation is in nature or in conscience where he's written his law or in Christ or in the Scripture. Ultimately, to see God in his glory and in his greatness will drive us to worship. We've been studying our Lord's teaching on worship from John chapter 4, and I invite you to turn there with me again this morning. John chapter 4, the paragraph that begins in verse 20 and runs down through verse 26, our Lord teaches us about worship. The paragraph begins with a statement that really isn't a statement but a question by the woman there, the Samaritan woman at the well. She says, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, 
I who speak to you am he. Now in this paragraph, as we have discovered over the last number of weeks, Jesus identifies for us several inviolable laws of true worship. If you're going to worship God, then you must worship God according to the prescription that Jesus lays down in this paragraph. We studied two of these laws completely together. The first law that we discovered, the first inviolable law of true worship is in verses 20 to 21. It's that true worship is not external, but must rise from the heart. True worship is not about where your body happens to be at the moment or some activity that you happen to be doing with your body. True worship must begin inside. It must flow out of the heart, and only then is it true worship. The second law that we discovered together and looked at in its entirety is in verse 22, and that is true worship is not merely emotional, but must result from knowledge. Our whole being is to be engaged in worship, so worship is emotional, but it is not merely emotional. There must be genuine knowledge of God for there to be worship. Now, last week, we began to study a third inviolable law of worship in this passage, It's related to the second law, but it goes much deeper and further. We find it in verse 23. It's this. True worship is not intuitive, but must be directed by God's truth. True worship is not intuitive. That is, it's not immediately known. You don't just sense it and know it. But rather, true worship must be directed by God's truth. Notice what Jesus said to this woman in verse 23. An hour is coming and now is, that's Jesus' shorthand in the gospel of John for saying, with my arrival, with my coming, a significant change has come about in worship. An hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now we saw last week that in practice, Those two components cannot be separated. The phrase, in spirit and truth, cannot be separated. You will not have worship in spirit without worship in truth. You will not have worship in truth without worship in spirit. They come together as a package. While they can't be separated, however, those two words describe for us two different facets of how we are to worship God. So we began last week to examine the first of those components, the phrase, in truth. We are to worship in truth, or as Jesus puts it to the woman, true worshipers will worship the Father in truth. Now what does that mean? Well, there is certainly a sense, of course, in which this is speaking of all of God's truth. All of his revelation is to direct our worship. God's entire word is to direct our worship to him, and that is true. So there is a sense in which that's what Jesus is saying to this woman. But the emphasis here is not on all of revelation necessarily, but rather on two specific components of revelation. The emphasis here is on understanding the truth about worship itself, and the truth about God. 
to worship God in truth, we must understand the truth about how we are to worship, and we must understand the truth about whom we are to worship. We must understand worship itself, and we must understand the object of our worship. So we began last week to look at the truth about worship itself, or how we are to worship. You understand this, that to worship God in truth requires that we understand what worship is. You can't worship God in truth if you don't even know what worship is. And so that becomes absolutely crucial to our study together. Now, when we examine the breadth of Scripture, we discover that the key idea in worship is contained in a single word, the word response. Worship is, at its heart, at its soul, response. It is a response to God and to his self-revelation. Martin Luther wrote, as we saw last week, to know God is to worship him. When we see God for all of, that he is, in all of his greatness, in all of his grandeur, in all of his grace, in all of his goodness, we will worship. Whenever in the Bible created beings encounter God, they always, without exception, respond with worship. Now, we left off last time by asking the question, if worship then is response, what kind of response? And that's the question I want us to answer today. We're still looking at the truth about worship itself. It's a response. What kind of response exactly is worship? Well, the best way to discover this is by studying the Hebrew and Greek words for worship, as well as examining how worship occurs in various contexts throughout the flow of Scripture. It's been my joy over the last few weeks to do that, and I've discovered I think you can congeal it down to true biblical worship or worship in truth is characterized by three primary responses. Here's what worship is. Worship is response, and true biblical worship is characterized by three primary responses. I say primary because this isn't exhaustive of all of the responses, but these are the primary responses to God that constitute worship. The first of these three responses is humble submission. Humble submission. You see this in both the Hebrew and the Greek words that are translated worship. The Hebrew the primary Hebrew word for worship, as well as the primary Greek word for worship, both mean the same thing. They both mean literally to prostrate oneself on the ground, to throw oneself on the ground before a superior, especially when it's royalty or a king. You see this throughout the flow of the Old Testament, especially because that's the period of kings. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word often occurs with a related expression that says to throw oneself on the ground or on one's face. It's not just prostrating oneself. It's prostrating oneself all the way prone in the dirt. Now, it's important to understand that both the Greek and the Hebrew words that are translated worship, the primary words for worship in both Testaments, Sometimes they are translated with the physical act. They are translated to bow down. 
or to prostrate oneself. Other times, the same Hebrew and Greek words are translated with the English word worship. It's the same word. To bow down, to prostrate oneself, to worship. So we could say this, in the technical sense, to worship is to bow down before or to prostrate oneself before. Our English word worship, of course, means to ascribe worth, and there's a sense in which that's true, as we'll see in a little bit. But that's not the essence of the Greek and Hebrew words. The essence of the Greek and Hebrew words is to throw yourself down in front of someone whom you recognize to be superior to you. Physically, these words describe every posture from kneeling to literally being absolutely prone on the ground with your face in the dirt and everything between. On a few occasions, this is done toward a human being who is in a position of superiority, particularly to the kings of the Old Testament. Now, when we think about that, that's hard for us to even comprehend, isn't it? Let's just be honest with ourselves that in our time in history, in our place in history, that's hard for us to grasp. Because our problem here in the land of the free is that we have nothing that even closely resembles this act. This is foreign to us. Can you even imagine throwing yourself down on the ground with your face in the dirt before any human being? And yet that was a common aspect of the culture of the Old Testament. And that's what the word means. Now, although on occasion this response is offered to men, most frequently it is expressed toward deity. So understand this. The primary words for worship in both Testaments mean to prostrate oneself before God. Now, I'm sure that you, like I do, sometimes find yourself literally on your face, on the ground before God in prayer, pleading with him. But the main point behind these words for worship is not what the body is doing. We learned that in the first law, didn't we? It's not about merely the external, although that's certainly part of it, by the way, and I don't mean to downplay that. We will physically throw ourselves down on our faces before God when we see him. But the main point behind these words The reason worship is associated with an outward posture is because of what that posture shows about our hearts. Think about it for a moment. If you were to kneel before another human being, or if you were to throw yourself on the ground with your face down in front of another person, what would that show about your relationship toward and attitude toward that person? it would clearly show a heart of humility and submission. As the great African-American poet James Weldon Johnson uh, wrote in God's Trombones, something I became acquainted with in college, he has one of the preachers there pray this prayer, Lord, bow our hearts beneath our knees and our knees in some lonesome valley. That's the picture behind this biblical word. That's the attitude that's to be here behind true biblical worship. Now, you can see this attitude of humble submission clearly in how the Hebrew word for worship, the main Hebrew word for worship, is used in non-theological texts. That is, in texts where it's not rendered to God. For example, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 
you really get a picture for what our response to God is to be by seeing what it looks like toward human beings. 2 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 6. Now you'll remember that Mephibosheth was in the lineage of Saul and Jonathan. And when Saul and Jonathan were killed, Mephibosheth was deeply concerned about what that meant for his future. He might be perceived as a threat because he was part of a different dynasty. And as long as he was alive, there might be loyalists who wanted to revert from David and his lineage back to Saul. And so with that concern, he comes here in verse 6, and it says in Second uh, Samuel 9, 6, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. Now, if this were God, it would say worshipped because it's the same word. But here he's not worshipping David. He is prostrating himself before David. Notice the attitude that goes with this, with this physical act. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, here is your servant. You see, immediately by throwing himself on the ground in front of David, he was acknowledging that he was no threat to David's kingship, that in fact he had no desire to assert his own right to the throne, but instead he was humbly submitting himself to David and recognizing him as the true king. You see it again in verse 8. Look at what he says. Again it says he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant? that you should regard a dead dog like me. You see that aspect of both submission and humility. That's the very attitude we are to approach our God with in worship. A proper response to the greatness and the glory of God is a humble submission like that. Whether accompanied by the physical act of prostrating ourselves or whether merely the expression of our hearts, that's how we are to respond. You see, by using a word for worship that means to prostrate oneself, God was telling us that we are to worship him in an attitude of humble submission. Now let me show you an example in reference to God. Turn to Joshua chapter 5. You can see this same attitude displayed by Joshua toward a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. You remember that not long after Joshua was put in charge, that he sees a man. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. It came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you on our side or are you on the other side? <laughs> I love the response, verse 14. He said, no. <laughs> Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the Lord of hosts, or the host of the Lord. That is, I come as the captain of the army of the Lord. And Joshua immediately recognizes that he is in the presence of deity. He's in the presence of a heavenly being, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down. And notice what accompanies this prostration. He says, what has my Lord to say to his servant? You see the attitude of humble submission? Immediately, as part of his worship, his response is, you are Lord, I am servant, what do you want from me? 
Verse 15, the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you were standing is holy. And Joshua did so. You see this humble submission that immediately responds to whatever the desire of the king may be. That's an example. But in Psalm 95, we see a call to the same kind of worship for us. Turn to Psalm 95. Verse 1. By the way, this psalm has, through the history of the church, been used as a call to worship because that is what it is. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hands are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. As one commentator said, here you see not only was the earth handmade, but it is hand-sustained. How do you respond to a great God and a great king like that? Verse 6, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. In other words, he's the king, the great king, and we are his subjects, and so let us humbly submit ourselves to him. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. Humble submission is absolutely essential to true biblical worship. What that really means is that when you and I approach God, we do so with hearts that are willing to obey whatever he tells us in his word. It also means that in our hearts, we accept unconditionally whatever his providential decisions about our lives may be. Or let me put it simply, to come and worship God properly means that we must bow to his holy word and we must bow to his sovereign will. That's really what this means to come in humble submission. We bow to his holy word and we bow to his sovereign will. We must acknowledge that he is king and that he has a right to rule our lives. Now folks, without this basic attitude, Whatever worship activities you may involve yourself in, it is not worship. Because this is part of the heart and soul of worship. This is what the words mean, to prostrate oneself, to humbly submit yourself to royalty, to the king. Let me ask you, is that how you thought of your worship this morning? Is that how you're thinking now about even the teaching of the word of God? Do you have in you a heart that is eager to humbly submit to the truth, to learn these things, and to put this into practice in your life, to respond to God like this, to truly worship is to have the spirit of humble submission. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part nine of his current series, The Heart of Worship. Tom will bring you part 10 on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word. And we would love if you'd join us then. But before we leave you today, here again is Tom with a closing thought for us. Tom? 
Friend, let me encourage you not to stop where we've stopped today. If you have a heart to know God, to truly understand his attributes, what he's like, his character, then let me encourage you to to visit the word Unleashed and to check out some other series there that center on who God is. There's nothing more important about you than what you believe God to be like. And we learn what he's like in the scripture. So, So visit the word Unleashed and look at series like No One Like Him, The One True God, Walking in Our Father's Footsteps. All of these are series ultimately that direct our attention to who God is. You'll find other resources and tools there, other passages that direct us to the knowledge of God, which excites our worship. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.